I am joined once again by Dr. Jane Nodell, Professor of Economics and Financial History at the University of Vermont. Professor, so glad to have you back. Welcome back. Thanks, Jack. I'm happy to be back. Looking forward to our conversation. Since we last spoke, the U.S. banking system has encountered some stresses. Some people are calling it turmoil. Other people are calling it a crisis. The the three you know the the bank failures, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and the attendant news around it. When when you look back, what are sort of the historical analogs that that stand out? And is this kind of par for the course of oh yeah, this is exactly like the same way thing that happened in eighteen ninety whatever? Or is is there something really new that that stands out to you? We, of course, we're all hoping that things will calm down, um, and there's some some signs that, that it is calming down. Um, but I guess what you know, what struck me, say, with um, Silicon Valley Bank, is that their problem was not credit risk. In other words, loans that weren't getting repaid. Their problem was the long-term government securities that they had on their balance sheet that because of the rapid increase in the in interest rates over the past year due to the, the Fed's anti-inflation policy, the value, market value of those securities has been has gone down significantly, right? And so this is a problem of, you know, that their that their balance sheet had a mismatch between the the deposits that are payable on demand and the longer term assets that they're that they're holding, right? And that was a problem that came up in the banking crisis of the eighties and nineties. And so what's interesting, I think First, the first thing that comes to mind is these banks, and they were not alone. There are lots of banks that did the same thing, were got very used to a low and stable interest rate environment. And they just kind of assumed that that was the way things were going to be. And so they didn't, you know, they didn't plan for the Fed to increase interest rates dramatically. I think they they bought this this idea that everybody had that, you know, we're now in this nirvana of low inflation and ample supply. And of course, that the um, the pandemic kind of put an end to all that. So when banks fails on the liability side, very often it's the case of a bank run, people withdrawing their money, either a bank run or a bank walk. You know, the story is the same. But on the asset side, as you say, there's credit risk, people aren't getting paid back. Or interest rate risk. You are getting paid back, but the money is just not worth it. What it used to be because now interest rates are higher. You could get a, a higher rate of return. When banks have failed historically, you know, painting with a broad brush, how often on the asset side is it because of credit losses or because of interest rate uh, risks? Oh, I don't think I don't think anyone's really taken that on that question on. Um, but for example, in the 1930s, there's a very nice paper that was done to try to identify whether the bank banks were failing because of asset quality problems. That is, it was the banks were insolvent, right? Or it was more of a liquidity problem. So a liquidity problem is a less significant, is like a, a smaller concern than an asset quality problem. Liquidity problem, you know, is a case where the Fed, a central bank is supposed to come in, provide lending to get the bank over the liquidity crisis with the understanding that because they're fundamentally solvent, you're not like bailing out 
a bank that really needs to be closed, right? And so what this person found, it was his, uh, Richardson was the author, is that it was, <laughs> was kind of like, well, about half and half, you know, half of them were kind of really liquidity problems, half of them were solvency problems. Now, what's universally understood is that a liquidity crisis can easily turn into a solvency crisis. And that's the whole rationale for having a central bank. And that was the lesson learned in the Great Depression when the Fed was not an effective lender of last resort. Like no one is claiming that they were. Because they weren't, banks were selling their assets, government securities and other kinds of, and loans and, and non-renewing loans in order to raise liquidity to meet deposit withdrawals. And because of that, asset prices fell dramatically so that even banks that weren't having a run on them now had a solvency problem because of all, you know, and there's no one to buy because everyone's trying to get liquid, you know. So that's the case for a central bank, that it is the, it is the bank that's going to become less liquid when all the other banks are trying to become more liquid. Right. And it extends that liquidity to the system. So it itself becomes less liquid, but it makes the system more liquid. Right. And because it issues the ultimate form of money in the economy, which is the reserves, their liabilities, you know, we, we don't worry about them being illiquid. The losses of the, of the assets of the banks in 1930s sounds like that was on the credit side. Uh, would you have to go to the 1980s, 1990s to sort of find banks that failed because of interest rate risks on the asset side? Um. Probably, yeah. And there, like, it was the thrift institutions that were really more in trouble. Um, and with the commercial banks, with the commercial banks, actually, a lot of those failures were due to um, overextension in real estate lending. Mm-hmm. Um, banks in, in um, like, energy states and energy prices were very volatile, agricultural prices very volatile. So you had more regional banking that can be unstable because its underlying economy is unstable, right? Right. Um, But these three, you know, more recent failures is the, you know, kind of the, the first time the Fed, the F, the Fed, the FDIC and the treasury have had to leap into action since 2008, 2009. Um, And I think that they learned a lot during the global financial crisis that they brought to bear in these three cases. Um, but it's kind of the, you know, the revenge of the uninsured depositors, you know, is the story with these three banks. Right. And the FDIC was, is it true that it was created during the Great Depression? Yes, in 1934. Yep. Yes. All right. Well, um, Professor, you got a new paper out called Making a Central Bank Out of the Federal Reserve, a Historical Perspective on Wartime Amendments to the Federal Reserve Act. And Professor, that's a really interesting title off the, off the bat because sort of your your, uh, your previous book, The Second Bank of the United States, quote, central banker in an era of nation building. It has the quote central, uh, the word central in quotes. Uh, so you, the second bank, not so much a second, uh, not so much a central bank, but the Federal Reserve, we think of as a central bank. Oh, the U.S. Is, uh, uh, central bank started in 1913. 
but you say they are making a central bank out of the Federal Reserve, that originally the Federal Reserve wasn't a central bank. What did you mean by this? Okay. So the yeah, I had always thought that from the very beginning, like from the 1913 Act, that we moved from a world in which the banks held gold as their reserves to a world in which they held Federal Reserve money, whether that's balances at a Federal Reserve bank or Federal Reserve notes, right? But as I started to learn about the period, I realized that that was not the case at all, in fact. In fact, under the Federal Reserve Act, the, the, what they did was they said that banks would keep, would be required to continue to hold gold in their vault because we were on the gold standard, right? They would continue to hold gold. And the big change was instead of holding correspondent balances, that is deposits with another bank, another private bank, commercial bank, and calling those reserves, that those would become reserves at a Federal Reserve Bank. Okay. So it was like a it was like getting halfway there, but they would still be holding a lot of gold. And the, the way they set up the Fed and the rules around Federal Reserve's ability to issue additional Federal Reserve notes was was very it it really it really constrained the fed to playing a very passive role in the banking system and that's why i say that they didn't really become a, okay a central bank that could become the powerful institution that it is today without these key amendments in 1917 one of which after the us entered the war one of which said banks have to hold, member banks must hold all of their reserves at Federal Reserve Banks. So you can hold the gold, but that's not going to count towards your required reserves. So what happens after that is gold becomes concentrated in the ownership of the Fed, which was really necessary for it to um, kind of play the role it did in helping finance the war and then and then in becoming um, a bank with a, an ability to really run monetary policy. And the thing that I found was kind of interesting was I looked a lot at the correspondence among early leaders of the Fed. The, the Benjamin Frank Strong, who was the president of the New York Fed, and Paul Warburg, who was on the inaugural uh, Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System down in DC. So they're writing to each other and they, they don't agree on everything, but they do agree that we need some major amendments to the Federal Reserve Act. And they don't get any traction until the US enters the war. Because what you, what becomes clear is that, you know, on balance, Congress really didn't wanna create a strong, strong central bank. We still were very worried about having that much power concentrated in this institution and that but that became all those concerns became secondary when it was like we got to go you know win this war right and just to put a point on it so from your paper in the conclusion it says for benjamin strong and paul warburg the key to the federal reserve system's future was to own and control as much of the national gold stock as possible 
So the Federal Reserve in its early years did not control the gold stock, and that was a problem. Why was that a problem? What challenges were the Federal Reserve and Fed activists who wanted the Fed to play an active role finding and encountering when they, you know, what, what were they, what did they want to do that they weren't able under the original Federal Reserve Act? Well, they were able to, to issue, the volume of notes they were able to issue was much greater after they owned all this gold because they were still having to back the notes with gold. So they had a gold reserve ratio requirement, right? So that that's one. And you they, you needed the, a, a lender of last resort or a bank that's helping the government finance a massive increase in the size of the federal government needs to be able to expand a lot in a short periods of time. So it helps them do that. The other thing is that if that hadn't happened and the banks were also having to hold gold, okay, the Fed is then competing with the, its member banks for the gold stock, right? And its notes kind of have are on an equal par with gold versus like being the number one form of money in the economy. Once they own all the gold, then there's less gold circulating. It's, it's an important part of the U.S. moving off of the gold standard um, is that people you know, didn't, didn't need, didn't, they weren't, didn't have these gold certificates, you know, they were instead they had federal reserve money. So the Fed had to establish its money as being, you know, just as good as the gold you used to use, you know, but, but here's, here's these notes instead. Basically what we can now consider money is, uh, Federal Reserve notes, and those only became issued after the Federal Reserve. So the greenback, we say, oh, the dollar started in the 1860s, but the greenback was not for the Federal Reserve notes that you know now uh, is within wallets all around the country. No, the greenbacks were were IOUs of the U.S. government, um, and they were an important part of the monetary base. So in the the paper that that we're discussing, there's a lot of data on the size and composition of the monetary base. Okay. So that's a concept that like you have the money supply, which is the currency and the bank deposits that people use to buy stuff, pay each other stuff. Okay. But then all that money supply is based on a foundation or a base of the best money in the economy, whatever that may be. So before the fed, it was, gold, silver, and greenbacks. Okay, and greenbacks were IOUs of the federal government. And the government, those were payable on demand in gold. You could go to a treasury office or sub-treasury office with your greenbacks and get gold at the fixed price then of $20.67 per troy ounce. Okay, so another part of the story that I'm telling there is that is that the the treasury is kind of a quasi central bank before the fed is set up okay and it tries to carry out like monetary stabilization especially like in the panic of 1907 um they tried to help but they were very limited in their ability because of this requirement to keep the greenbacks convertible into gold so there's only so much they could do without undermining the 
U.S. dollar being on the gold standard. And that, you know, we had all the fights over silver versus gold at the end of the 19th century, you know, um, gold won. And the kind of predominant view um, in, in at Washington, D.C. and also in the, you know, in the centers of finance domestically was that it was essential to stay on gold, you know, because the U.S. to be really respected in the community of nations, you know, you know, had to stay on gold. And and Strong believed that, too. And all these early leaders of the Fed were 100 percent into the gold standard. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having a big stock of gold in the Fed, in Fed vaults, is a big part of like elevating the U.S. internationally um, and establishing the absolute dominance of the Fed, the Fed's money domestically. So to sort of graduate and come into one's own as a monetary authority, you have to have a lot of gold. If, if there's no gold in your vaults, why should anyone treat your liabilities as real money? Exactly. And, okay, so how did the 1917 amendments cause gold to, to flood into the vaults of the Federal Reserve? Gold doesn't pay any interest, right? Reserves at the Fed don't pay any interest. Okay. So if they were to hold their, they had required reserves. So if they were going to hold them all as reserves at the Fed and also keep holding all the gold they used to hold, they're tying up, what, between 35, 35% of their assets in a non-interest bearing form. Mm-hmm. So they're going to like, okay, we're taking our gold to the Fed. We're going to deposit our gold in the Fed and we're going to get reserve balances at the Fed in our reserve account. And reserves and and federal reserves uh, count as reserves now, whereas gold didn't count it at all anymore, or they just counted for much less? They didn't count towards required reserves. Okay. For the member banks, they did not count. Okay. And so how did the monetary system between 1917 and, let's say, 1929, you know, popping of the the great stock market bubble – what did that uh, system look like? You commonly referred to as the the Roaring Twenties, seen uh, you know in general as an era where the gold standard was followed. I recently interviewed a monetary professor, um, uh, Perry Merling, who's he's of the view, a school I'm sure you're familiar with, that the gold standard really was a sterling standard. All currencies were uh, convertible into the, the pound sterling, and the pound sterling itself was convertible into gold. How accurate, in your view, in your own work? Uh, how frequently was the dollar converted into gold? You know, every, no one uh, disputes the fact that it could be, but how uh, frequently was it actually? Actually, I'm not sure we know that. I mean, we know something about like during the Great Depression when there was foreign holders of dollar assets wanted to convert to gold. So they would come in and they would, a lot of them you know, had deposits at the Fed, including foreign central banks, in um, Switzerland, France, France especially. France has always been a problem for the United States. Why is that? <laughs> in terms of in terms of the gold standard, and well, because they they're the ones. I mean, you've heard this this expression, exorbitant privilege, mm-hmm. that the United States has as the issuer of the inter, the global reserve currency. So that was a, a phrase that De Gaulle came up with. That maybe his one of his big advisors, Jacques Rueff, R U E F F, came up with. 
that they resented the fact that the, that the U.S. had that exorbitant privilege. Um, and they tried to undermine, you know, basically weaken, they weaken the dollar, weaken the United States by, by itself holding a lot of gold. So when there were, if essentially there was a run on the dollar that led U.S. leaving the dollar once and for all in the 70s, right? Leaving gold, leaving gold. Leaving gold, sorry, yeah. And that was, the France was, you know, a big mm-hmm. part of that, that run on the dollar. So, you know, in terms of, you know, was it really a sterling standard? Um, I guess I would say it was until World War One, And then I've read some research, is pretty convincing that in the 20s, the, the central currency was shared by the dollar and the sterling. Then in World War, then during the Great Depression, it kind of shifted back to sterling. But then obviously after World War II with Bretton Woods and the real weakening of Great Britain as a result of, you know, the two wars, the Great Depression, sterling just, you know, it wasn't going to be sterling anymore. It was going to be, it was going to be the dollar. Hmm. Do you think that the proliferation of of commercial activity of of bank loaning in the 1920s was uh, aided by the 1917 Federal Reserve amendments uh, because it just made banks more more willing to to make loans. And then also we can get into the Federal Reserve's made these technical amendments in 1917, but it continued to to not see itself as the lender of last resort, uh, as I think is the mainstream view now, which I, I think you think is wrong. I haven't done a lot of work on the 1920s economy, um, but I think that at least it makes sense to me that if if you are a member of the Fed, you're a, a bank that's a member of the Fed, and you know that you have access to the discount window, and as long as you have the right collateral, you're going to be able to get through a short-term liquidity problem. It makes sense to me that that would, that's supportive of lending, you know, of, because if you, if you have to stay totally liquid all the time, the only way you do that is by holding only short-term paper. Okay. But the thing is the real economy needs longer term loans to support longer term kinds of investments that -hmm. drive productivity growth. So, you know, we don't want a banking system that a banking system that's just obsessed with always being as liquid as it can, you know, to, in my mind is not optimal. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. 
Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. To, to what degree did the Federal Reserve see itself as a lender of last resort starting in its inception in 1913? And then to, to what degree did that change after the, the amendments in 1917? I don't think you can even find this phrase, lender of last resort, in the Federal Reserve Act or anything like it, you know, in terms of the contemporary. What they were supposed to do, and they did do this, they were supposed to solve the problem of shortages of currency that seemed to be endemic before the Fed and all those crises of the late 19th century, early 20th century. There were shortages of currency, you know, to pay wages, to, you know, for farmers to, you know, to, to buy the stuff that they needed, you know, to, to plant crops and all that stuff. And that like was shut down, you know, parts of the real economy. So, and that was linked to the restrictions on the growth of national banknotes. So the real, the real economy, oh, I'm being paid. Oh, I need to buy bread. There just was a shortage of actual money, which, you know, throughout history, a problem because there, there never was enough gold. Um, and in the 18th, starting from the greenback era, money, what were greenbacks? It was no longer banks issuing their own currency or issuing their, their own paper. And sometimes there just wasn't enough dollars. There was a dollar shortage. Yeah. You know, and there were banks were issuing currency, but it, there was all liabilities of individual banks. All right. National bank notes. Now the national bank notes were in fact fully guaranteed by the U S government. Because they were backed by the treasury debt? Well, in part because of that. But the treasury said, if, if your bank fails and you're holding that bank's notes, if you come to the U.S. Treasury, we're going to give you gold equal to the value of your notes. Okay. Now, the U.S. government had those, had collateral of the U.S. government debt that it could sell to help pay for this guarantee. Okay. The bank note, the bank deposits of the national banks, nationally chartered banks, were not guaranteed. Okay. So that's why you had runs. Why people wanted to, you know, because the currency was completely safe because it had this treasury guarantee. Okay. But that said, during these crises, shortages of currency would would develop and the fed was created to make sure that there was always enough currency there was an adequate supply of currency when there were spikes in the demand for currency coming from whatever reason okay and the way a bank would get more currency is by going to member banks go to the fed and either take out a loan and get the currency or they take their reserve deposits and say, I want to I want to cash these deposits. Give me currency for these deposits. And in the Great Depression, the Fed did a very good job at that. Mm. Okay. But it's another example of like fighting the last war. Yeah. Because then there are all, the, all these other new problems that it wasn't really wasn't 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 seeing, wasn't responding to. Right. So that's super interesting. So right now, uh, people who have um, liabilities of banks, they have a different stack of who gets paid first. So 
who gets paid last equity holders, stockholders, then preferred stockholders, then bondholders, and then depositors, depositors, and particularly uninsured, excuse me, insured deposits, uh, uh, below the, uh, quarter million limit. If you have $249,000, that is safe, no matter what interesting variant. I didn't know this, that in the 19th century, uh, to, to a great degree, that was the opposite where if you had a owned a bond of the, uh, um, a bank or a note of the bank that could be guaranteed, but not deposits. And that's why you had all these bank runs. Yes. Just the notes were guaranteed, not the bonds. Not the debt. They, banks didn't issue a lot of debt at that time. Um, okay. okay. So what's the difference between, an, I guess, a depositor and a note holder? A note holder would be someone that held the currency issued by a bank. Ah, okay. Versus holding a deposit in the bank. Okay. And the thinking was, that because not everyone had a bank relationship, right? We weren't. So a lot of people would just use currency in all, all of their economic life. It was just currency. And it was thought that people that use currency on average were, you know, less well-educated, lower income, and they needed protection, you know, mm-hmm. whereas the depositors is probably more businesses had deposit accounts. So the thought was they should be able to, differentiate between good banks and bad banks, all right? And so that thinking is still with us, is still with us. So in all this conversation about these three bank failures, you know, there's this idea that, well, maybe it's time to insure all the deposits. But people are saying no other, and there's, you know, debates about this because you'll have lots of economists to say that is a bad idea. Because you need the market discipline from those uninsured depositors. Yeah, the, the parallels are, are really jumping out at me. So Silicon Valley Bank uh, failed uh, in early March. And not only w- was the um, depositors under the FDIC limits guaranteed, but deposits beyond that were, were guaranteed, I think, uh, two days after the Sunday on, I, I think, uh, March 12th. Um, and that is is that uh, uh, new? A- and also, yeah, this the degree of question of, of moral hazard of should depositors be sort of playing the role of a of a cop who are regulating banks? And you know, if you if you own a, a certain business, if you're a farmer, a large farmer, I mean, should you be doing you know, independent credit analysis on your bank? And then if you're if it's not good, you're you're leaving your your uh, put, putting your money somewhere else. Is is that a a truly good model, and yeah, I mean, how has this thinking changed uh, throughout American history? Clearly, initially, the the limit on insured deposits was two thousand five hundred dollars. Okay, much lower price level than all that stuff, and it gets kind of adjusted up. Um, but it was never the thought that we would insure all the depositors because you wanted some depositors thinking that the the the, the entities that had larger deposits would have the capacity to discern, to get the information needed to differentiate between good banks and bad banks, right? And provide that market discipline, okay? So during the, there were very, very few bank failures until the 80s and 90s, okay? So it seemed like, oh, this is great. Bank, you know, deposit insurance has solved the problem of bank runs and that caused bank failures. So then we get into the 80s and 90s, and we've got banks failing um, really more for asset quality problems, 
like they overinvested in commercial real estate or, you know, energy, agriculture, all that stuff. Okay. But then it's up to the FDIC to figure out how to so-called resolve all these bank failures. And they end up resolving the bank failures in ways that almost always ended up protecting all the uninsured depositors. And there were no bank runs. There were bank failures, but no bank runs. Because they did this thing with, you know, we're going to take care of everybody, you know. Um, I just want to say, so in the 80s and 90s, when banks failed, you're saying for mostly on the asset side, the FDIC hinted that they would take care of uninsured depositors or they actually did. In other words, there were uninsured depositors who, based on the framework of the you know, 1934 FDIC Act, should have uh, been exposed to risk, ha- had their capital at risk, but, but they weren't because of the FDIC. That's what you're saying. Right. And it happened through these purchase and assumption agreements that the FDIC entered into. So a bank gets closed by its regulator, by its primary regulator, okay, which could be a state agency. Then that agency almost always designates, if it's an insured bank, the agency designates the FDIC to be the receiver. Mm -hmm. Okay. So then the FDIC is like, okay, now what are we going to do? You know? Um, And in a straight deposit payout, this is like the hardcore, you know, we're going to just we're going to insure the deposit insure depositors and then we're going to liquidate the assets of the bank and then once we know what the as- what we're getting for the assets we will you know pri- we will go to we will pay off as we can the uninsured depositors then the you know there will be that priority like you were talking about earlier mm-hmm. the shareholders are at the bottom of the list okay so in that scenario, you know, probably maybe the uninsured depositors get, you know, 50 cents on the dollar, something like that. Okay. So the people who really believe in market discipline would say, you know, that's what you need to do because people will learn their lesson, you know, and then we're going to have a stronger system of market discipline at the end of the day. If they'd done that, probably the banking crisis would have been a lot worse because the word would have gotten around that uninsured depositors are taking losses. So instead of doing deposit payouts, the Fed would would look for bidders, look for banks that- The FDIC. The FDIC, thank you, would look for bidders and they would make the deal sweet by saying the FDIC will take the bad assets that you don't want to take as long as you take all of the deposits, the mm-hmm. insured deposits and the uninsured deposits. So the uninsured deposits, depositors get protected by being now the depositors of a healthy, successful bank. Yes. And that is what happened with First Republic got taken over by JP Morgan. JP Morgan took, took over you know, virtually all of the assets and virtually all of the deposits. The stockholders of First Republic uh, basically got wiped out as, as well as the preferred equity holders. But the system worked for there. But I think in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, the FDIC could not arrange a deal fast enough. So they did re- you know, instantly declare, I think on that Sunday, that all uninsured depositors 
would be uh, taken care of. And I think they did that for Signature Bank, which they closed and announced upon on, on the same day. Exactly right. What was so interesting about the Silicon Valley, well, they're both fascinating, but with Silicon Valley, on the Friday, the FDIC said, it's a deposit payout. We will, we're going to issue, we will let the uninsured depositors know what they'll get after we liquidate the assets. By Sunday, they're like, mm, now we're going to, we've declared a systemic risk exception, which requires the approval of the board of the FDIC, the board of the Fed, and the Treasury Secretary. And the Treasury Secretary has to consult with the president. So, which kind of gets the president off the hook a little bit, you know. They yeah. have to talk about it, you know. Um, <laughs> that's probably smart. I don't know. Um, so by Sunday, they're worried, though, about the run, about this thing spreading to other banks because they realize how many banks have a lot of this long-term, have this 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 maturity mismatch um, and have a similar problem, maybe not as big a problem, but a big enough problem. Um, and and they, so they say, we're, we're going to guarantee all of the deposits of signature, signature in Silicon Valley. And we're setting up a new lending program for members that might have a problem and that, allowing banks to borrow up to a year. That's a very long term for a lender of last resort program. So that's kind of a pattern I see often with these crises is that there's, there's a sacrificial lamb. There's somebody that goes down first. The, the, the authorities let it go. Then they say, oh, whoa, this looks bigger than just this one bank. And then they put in place new lender of last resort programs that help everybody else. Right. So that uh, bank term funding program allows uh, banks to pledge their a certain set of assets, not all assets, uh, and get uh, loans with a duration of up to one year uh, on it. So it, it allows them to tap liquidity. But it's my understanding that the banks that hold uh, a gr the greatest percentage of paper that is eligible, collateral that is eligible, are the big bank because they own a lot of agency mortgage-backed securities and on all these sort of you know, Tennessee Valley bonds and stuff like that. Whereas the small regional banks, they own a lot more loans and whole loan mortgages, which can be eligible for a federal home loan borrowing, but not the, the BTFP. So I, you know, a moment that kind of went, went viral was a, 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 someone from, from Congress, um, was it from Arkansas or Oklahoma said, hey, uh, you know, Treasury Secretary Yellen, you bailed out uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which, by the way, headquartered at you know, the San Francisco Fed, where you used to work. Are you going to do the same thing for the uninsured depositors of in my, in my district in, in Arkansas? And you know, she did not give a, a super clear answer to that. How how are you thinking about whether the FDIC will like you know, continue to extend uninsured deposit in, insurance uh, to banks that may fail in in the future? Yeah, that's a good question. I just want to add something about the bank term lending program, which mm -hmm. I think is very interesting. So it allows banks to post collateral in the form of the long-term government securities. And they're allowed to value those securities at face value. Not at their market value. Mm -hmm. 
And that's why Silicon got in trouble. They had to sell and take the losses and its assets shrink and becomes insolvent. So um, I don't know. I just keep thinking, well, if that had been in place for, you know, Silicon Valley, would it still be, would it still be a bank? Yeah, I know it's like, you know, bad form to get too upset, you know, about banks, but Signature and Silicon both did some pretty good lending, you know, and you're, you, there's a, there's a loss of credit remediation services. Um, I go back to, they didn't have loans that weren't, weren't getting repaid. Yes, that is so correct. And uh, you, sometimes I see people in, in the media stating that their, their loans went bad, but they, they didn't. I, I have said this many times, but yeah, their, their capital call, their main business line had, I think, one loan go bad in the, in the history of you know, the 30 years of, of doing business. It was that interest rate risk management which they did uh, extremely poorly. And, you know, the counterfactual that you posed, I think you're right. I mean, they owned over $100 billion of mortgage-backed security, which you know, we know is eligible for the BTFP program and which we know could be pledged at par, which yes. is a, a, a you know, I'm glad you reminded us of that because it is a, a, a huge uh, a factor. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was definitely, you know, it was very responsive, but it was too late to help, help Silicon. Yeah, always, always fighting the last war. So, yeah, how are you, how are you thinking about FDIC insurance? Because you said in the eighties and nineties they didn't do the sort of uh, hard um, sale, but they did engineer a merger, a takeover with a different bank. This is a step different. This is saying actually, no, deposits over a quarter million dollars are going to be fully taken care of. I mean, you had you had venture capital backed companies. You know, famous, famous names, famous. You know, that had five a five billion dollar bank deposit, and they were you know saved. Yeah, I think that they, you know, strictly speaking, those <clears throat> deposits were sitting at the bridge bank that the Fed set FDIC sets up for the after they close down the bank, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so it kept those. I mean, in a way, it was good for the FDIC too because it it, kept, it keeps those deposits there at the bridge bank. Yeah. You know. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. I mean, and this is a question really for Congress because the FDIC needs the law to change for it to start to insure all the deposits. And after the 80s and 90s, Congress was in 1991 adopted the FDIC Improvement Act, which sought to re-inject market discipline from the uninsured depositors. And it, and it, it tried to kind of tie the hands of the FDIC in terms of when it could, but by saying that if the, the FDIC were to, is, is supposed to resolve a bank with the least cost to the deposit insurance fund, um, even if it means le- you know not covering all the uninsured depositors. So before that, the FDIC, FDIC was really focused on stability, right? versus market discipline. And you could, you know, there's, you can see why, you know, there's a case for that, right? Um, Because it's hard to predict just how bad things are going to get. And severe financial crises impose huge costs on the real economy. You know, in terms of unemployment, people losing income, people losing their homes, people losing their businesses, you know, and you got to weigh the the cost of undermining market market discipline with the cost in the real economy of people losing income and wealth 
But after the 1991 Act, you know, Congress is like, really, we really want you to be, you know, get that market discipline back in there. So the question now is like, what is Congress going to say? Professor, I'm actually very lucky to say I actually will be interviewing the former head of the FDIC, um, Sheila Bear. So if you have any questions that you can uh, you know, direct to me that would make it seem like, uh, you know, I, I have the knowledge of a monetary professor history of FDIC, uh, either on camera or off camera, I, I'd, I'd be very, very grateful. In, in the meantime, I I'd want to ask you about the systemic risk exception. What does that mean exactly? And to what degree is that related to the 13-3 part of the Federal Reserve Act, which uh, I think allows for unusual and exigent, exigent circumstances? Yes. Okay. So there they're kind of similar, but obviously one applies to the Fed, the latter, and the former applies to the FDIC. The, under the systemic risk exception, it says that's an exception to the rule that you have to do the least cost resolution. Um, so it says if you declare a systemic risk, then you can close a, a bank in a way that is not the least, co- least cost way to close the bank. And that also covers uninsured depositors. Okay. However, if you cover the uninsured depositors, you can't, it's not the taxpayer who's going to pay for that. It's the banks, the surviving banks. So, I mean, I think an important point that people understand is that the banks pay for the insurance. The taxpayers there is kind of a back up a line of credit, but, and this would be a question for, for Dr. Bear, which is, has there ever, have, has it the taxpayer ever actually had to cover uninsured depositors? I don't think they have. It's there in principle, but they've never wanted to use it. And even in the global financial crisis, the banks did not draw on their line of credit. They found a way to get to in to get the deposit insurance fund up from negative into positive territory without going to the taxpayers. Because they know I think they just know that that's, that's just political death. Yes. That is a really good point and as a fantastic question that I I will be sure um, to ask doctor. Yeah, that's great that you got her. I'm a big fan of hers. I think she's, she's really, she's really got a good take on things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, me too. So, so that's the systemic risk exception for the FDIC, the 13, three act for the federal reserve. Tell us about that. How much of that is new or was that all in the 1913 original? So that was amended into the federal reserve act in 1934. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting timing. The same year that the FDIC is set up. So I think that they, what they realized was one problem in the Great Depression with the Fed being able to respond to the, the problems that the banks were having is they had very limited collateral. We were talking earlier about this for a loan from the Fed. And a lot of the banks that were in trouble. I mean, it started out with the little rural country banks with a lot of long-term loans to farmers and ranchers, right? 
who are actually producing the food that we all need to survive. Okay. Mm. And those guys need longer term loans. So they were very illiquid and they didn't have the right collateral. I mean, a lot of them weren't members anyway, problem one, but even those that were members didn't have the right collateral so they couldn't get discount loans. So some smart lawyer got that in there and, and the Fed's been using it as needed to kind of say, if we just, we have a situation on our hands that no one could have ever predicted, so we need to do some new things. They use it extensively in the global financial crisis, of course. And what does the 13-3 Act exactly allow the Federal Reserve to do, or is it somewhat of a blank check? You can do whatever you want. It's kind of a blank check. Yeah. So the you know, totally new and unprecedented monetary policies of March 2020, April 2020, where the, the Federal Reserve you know, lent against commercial paper, they set up a facility to buy high-yield bonds, all of that sort of, you know, what was, what, what before the crisis would have been seen as radical uh, uh, um, acts that was justified by, you know, the 13-3 exemption, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, you know, when, when Bernanke and others kind of defend the Fed, you know, they kind of say, we were, we were kind of hamstrung by the law. But if you, in my financial history class, we read a, paper, a book by um, Gordon and Tallman called Fighting Financial Crises, which is a good book. I recommend it. And one of their, their lessons is during a financial crisis, you should go ahead and break the law. <laughs> you know, like before the Fed, well, what happened when there were runs is the banks would just suspend specie payments. They would just say, we're still open but we're not going to give you our gold. And it was like, and we'll let you know when we resume specie payments. So it was even worse than the bank run. There was a bank run, but people just didn't get their money back. And that, I guess that's the, you know, it's a wonderful life scene where. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people could still use their bank, right? They could still use their write checks and deposit checks and stuff like that. They just couldn't get gold. Mm-hmm. Or greenbacks. Professor, earlier you said that the Fed did a good job during the Great Depression of its original purpose of supplying ready currency, but they did not do a good job of, of be, being a lender of last resort. Could you just explain that difference for us? Sure. So if a, if a member bank had a jump in the demand for currency in its local economy, okay, it could go to the Fed and get currency, okay? And there was all, and the Fed met all of those demands for currency that came from banks. Now, they had to have enough, you know, a big enough reserve account to get the amount of currency that they wanted, and they needed to have enough good collateral to borrow the currency, if you will, okay? But from just a basic physical point of view, the notes were there and they'd like produced enough notes in advance. Like, like right after the, the federal reserve act, you read about them. We're, we're printing a bunch of notes, you know, <laughs> we're doing our job. <laughs> we are going to have stacks of notes back here, you know, because you know, what happened during the, um, before the fed was banks would try to get more, more, ne- more notes. These are notes 
their notes, national bank notes. But some of them are saying, but it took three months to get more, more notes because it's this huge bureaucratic process. Yeah. And they, and they literally had to print more. It just took time, you know, and there's all these administrative steps, like to prove that you like, you've deposited your, your government bonds and you've, you've put gold into this redemption account. And I mean, in a banking crisis, you need to get it now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but the, the lender of last resort is, you know, what I mean is that, um, these, there were a lot of banks that failed because they had runs on their deposits and some proportion of those failures could have been prevented if they'd been able to borrow from the Fed, okay. mm-hmm. either directly from the Fed or through a bank that was a member of the Fed. Okay. And the, the Fed, but, and also the Fed is criticized. This is Mike Friedman and Schwartz, that the, um, the Fed allowed the money stock to contract, allowed the price level to fall and didn't recognize that they needed to be buying government securities and kind of flooding, flooding the system with reserves, with new reserves. It allowed reserves to kind of be stable instead of just really expanding the monetary base. There's probably something to that too, because expanding the monetary base helps all the banks, not just the banks that are that belong to the Fed. Right, and now it isn't the case that the monetary base is shrinking because of quantitative tightening. Yeah, it is definitely it's it, it's it's shrinking. Yes, as it as it needs to. And as so we say, as it needs to, why is that the case? Because we have inflation. Well, I just think that the the system had I mean I'm not I don't really think that the having all the money is has been inflationary um, but I think that the the Fed loses control when there's all this when there's so many reserves in the system because mm-hmm. it means that banks can go and and they actually have no reserve requirement anymore yes They've and they have to pay money on the reserves now and they're earning interest on the reserves. Yeah. You know, and it's like the Fed actually has negative net income right now. Yes. Um, none of this makes any sense to me. Um, well, you know, yeah, but just to put that in context, I was you know, reading your excellent book about the Second Bank of the United States, just flipping through it today. And the Second Bank of the United States earned something like 4% on its assets. Yeah. Uh, so it had it was very profitable. Uh, entity, and you compare that now to the Federal Reserve, where they're paying the interest on excess reserves rate or re- reverse repo rate, which are very similar, you know, um, connected to the Fed, Fed, funds, Fed funds rate of you know now let's say around five percent, and they own all these mortgage-backed securities and treasuries that they bought in spring of 2020 that are yielding you know 1.5 percent or two percent. So it's it really is, a, and so you spend you know a lot of your time in the world of the 1800s, the Second Bank. So I, I can understand why what is going on now with the Federal Reserve seems so foreign to you. Yeah, definitely. Because it is. And they're not booking it. I mean, they're, they're, they don't show their, their capital going down. They're booking it somehow as an asset. So a negative equity position, I think. Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, so. that, that, that really is remarkable. Um, so, Professor, the last topic I'd, I'd like to approach with you is the debt ceiling. Mm. Uh, how much 
Congress is allows the Treasury to, to borrow, I think. When did that practice become uh, you know, when did Congress sort of place handcuffs on on the Treasury's ability to 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 spend or borrow? Um, and then I was, you know, put that in the context of for much of America's history, it was a surplus nation, not a, a debtor nation, meaning that it's you know exported more than it imported. Yeah, that's a great question and important piece of history. So the the so the debt ceiling dates from the early 20th century. I don't know the exact date. And maybe like shortly after the Fed is created, but I'm not exactly positive. But what I do know is that before the debt ceiling, the executive branch had to come to Congress every time it wanted to borrow money. So the debt ceiling was like, at the time, it was like that was an improvement. Because mm-hmm. it was like, you can borrow, you can just manage the debt, you can do what you need to do to run the federal government without coming to us every time you need to borrow. See what I mean? Yeah. So it, the the debt ceiling now, people say it's just a chain on our neck. It's so bad. It's you're saying it was an improvement relative to any time the Treasury wanted to borrow, they had to approach Congress. Exactly. So it was actually an improvement over way they, the way they were doing it, right? So from their point of view, we still want to have you know some limit. You know, this is why you had to you had, you had to come to us every time to make you know we wanted to because we're in charge of the fiscal soundness, right? Really, Congress is where the budget is made, not, not the White House. Um, and, but of course, it's turned into something quite different. Um, and they historically, every single time the ceiling is lifted, it's just a question of how painful it's going to be. Mm-hmm. But if right now it's a game of chicken, a very dangerous, destabilizing game of chicken, because as you know, U.S. government debt is in, is permeates the financial system in terms of collateral for all kinds of finance, you know, large wholesale financial transactions, and that that are resting on having this safe asset as collateral. And if that's no longer safe asset, hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto. Some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com slash research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance 10. Thanks. And let's get back to the interview. We started this conversation talking about the transition of what was money, what were you know greenbacks issued by the Treasury, sounds like not interest-bearing, and that gradually what became money was the, the Federal Reserve note, which we still carry in our pockets. So for everyday transactions, money uh, are, is cash, but now really bank deposits, credit cards. But in terms of large uh, institutional investors, what is it accurate to say that what is money now are Treasuries? I would agree with that. Yes. 
And those are at risk of at least uh, on paper defaulting uh, if Congress does not get its act together. You know, or the interest rates rising, and so the face value goes down. Yes, and and uh, have you followed this theory of the trillion dollar coin? I have a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What What do you make of that theory? That okay, Congress isn't going to uh, you know, the Treasury is not going to issue debt. It's going to you know produce this coin, and the Federal Reserve can buy it for a trillion dollars, and it will be a very high quality platinum coin. So it'll be worth so much. As a workaround, I mean, it makes as much sense as the Fed buying government debt and just creating reserves when it buys the government debt. Yeah, it's buying finding some asset for the for the you know, um, it has but it has, it has to be an asset owned by the Treasury for the Treasury to be able to deposit it in it, its account at the Fed, and then it has the money that it needs to cover the Social Security checks and. Yes. So as you say today on the plumbing, anything can happen in the same way that, you know, in the, in the 1920s, the Federal Reserve owning U.S. Treasury debt was seen as ridiculous. And now it's extremely commonplace. Anything can happen. What, what analysts should, uh, you know, when think about it is the consequences. Does this make sense? Not the plumbing. Yeah. I mean, if you have to do it to avoid a default, I would say do it. Right? Yes. The fundamental problem is that is that Social Security and Medicare have to be put on a long-term solvent basis. And they're not. I mean, in 20, like already, the Social Security is, has operating deficits and is going to run through its surplus within 10 years. Okay. So the, the, the debt crisis is fundamentally a governance crisis. In my mm-hmm. because we don't have enough of a governing center of elect of people in Washington who are going to be able to get together and say, okay, let's just solve this thing once and for all. And then everyone's, you know, people globally will say, okay, th- those are people who can take care of their fiscal problems. All right. Well, uh, on that cheery note, Professor, we'll, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, t- two final things. I, I don't think you have a Twitter account, so where can where can people follow your work? And the, you know this this paper that we d- discussed, which you know again is called "Making a Central Bank Out of the Federal Reserve," uh, that was released uh, last fall. What are you working on right now? So right now I'm back to colonial colonial monetary history, um, mm. and there's a conference in Portugal. I'm gonna I gotta. In fact, I have to like right now go figure out what I'm saying in this paper about the the bills of credit, the first the first paper money issued by Massachusetts by uh, purportedly the first the first paper not really but you know um, Gerard Goldberg has a new book that is very interesting about the Massachusetts bills of credit and I'm, I'm going to have a little different take on it. Okay. Not really money, in my view, not money. Why not money? Because the money was specie, was silver. You know, people thought that's that was money. This is like a treasury bill. This is like a short-term treasury bill. It's government debt. Where can people uh, find find your work? I guess I guess my website. I don't have a lot. Of, that paper's not open access, which you know is kind of too bad. But it's published in Review of Political Economy. Yes. Um, and it's a 
it's an it's a special issue on the progressive era. So I think there's going to be a lot of interesting, interesting work in that issue. Yes, and but you're making a central bank out of the Federal Reserve. Uh, I found it, and I recommend people uh, uh, follow in my footsteps and find it online. Um, and of course, um, of course, the book Second Bank in the United States is is a must read. We put it on there, Professor. Thank you so much, and uh, talk soon. My pleasure, Jack. Take care. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.